this is your first time here, this, this series that we are in right now and, and will be in till the end of the summer is on the Apostles' Creed, and so it's a little different than uh, how we normally do things. Our, our regular practice here at Del Cerro Baptist Church is to preach straight through books of the Bible, um, and so right up until we started this series, we've been preaching through Matthew for the last two and a half years. Uh, we've been preaching through, I've been preaching through First Thessalonians when I preach, but in the summer we like to, to take a break from that. Uh, we'll continue right where we left off when we hop back in uh, to address some topics that, if you preach that way, sometimes get addressed a little less. And so we've decided to take a, a, a break from that and preach line by line through the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's been a challenge for us as pastors, as preachers, uh, in, in a very good way. And so we're excited to continue that this morning. Uh, with that, w- would you pray with me? As we open God's word together. Heavenly Father, our Lord and our God, we ask this morning by by your Holy Spirit you would help us to see the wonderful and wondrous things that are in your word. Father, we pray that as we open your word that you would teach us from it. Father, and as we hear your truth proclaimed, Lord, help us to embrace it. Help us to embrace this truth in our minds. Help us to live out your truth in this world, especially in this world, in a time and a place, in a culture, in a society, becoming more and more hostile to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, to the authority of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this morning. By the, again, by the work of your Spirit, you would work within us a loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and an understanding of, of why it is so important that we hold forth these truths and them alone. We pray this in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus Now, that's kind of a Sunday school question, but do you believe in Jesus? Now, Josh had mentioned a couple weeks ago that that a quote by A.W. Tozer where he said the the most important thing, the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God, and that's true. And and this question is kind of another question down that similar line. Your answer to this question, do you believe in Jesus, is one of, if not the most important questions you will have to answer in your life, no matter who you are, how old you are, or where you're from. In fact, your answer to this question will ultimately determine your eternal destiny. But it's, it's, it's a deceptively complicated question with many layers. What do I mean? Well, Even amongst the group of people who would say, yes, I believe in Jesus, there's there's another question beneath the surface that we have to answer. Well, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Which, Which Jesus do you believe in? You see, one of the the constant themes of the New Testament, and the more and more that you read the letters that we have in the New Testament and the Gospels, 
one of the constant themes is that false teachers will come, have come, into the church, outside the church. False prophets will come, and false Jesuses will come. These teachers will proclaim, as Paul says, another gospel and another Christ, disguising themselves as angels of light to deceive. And knowing the schemes of the devil, would we expect anything less? So there are many Jesuses out there today. It's simply not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. You, you must believe in Jesus as revealed in God's holy word. But again, false Jesuses are everywhere. In fact, they probably come knocking on your door quite often. So when you say, do you believe in Jesus? Let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God? That he is actually Michael the archangel? That he wasn't crucified on a cross, but on a pole? I hope not, because that's the false Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Or, or do you believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer? That he is not the eternal God, but rather a spiritual child of God the Father with some spirit wife? That, that he will one day share the judgment seat with Joseph Smith? Again, I hope not. This is the false Jesus of the Latter-day Saints. Or how about this one? And our, our college interns will be familiar with this one. Do you believe that that Jesus Christ returned in 1918 as a Korean man named An Sang-hung and began to preach the gospel of the new covenant and restore the truth of the Passover? Do you believe that Christ, An Sang-hung, is the second coming of Jesus who restored the truth that was lost? If you believe that, you might also believe that there is a definite reason God taught his disciples to call him Father. The paternal title Father was used because there is surely an opposite maternal existence of God the Father, the Bible teaches there is also God our Mother. I hope you don't believe that, because this is a false Jesus taught by an organization officially known as the Worldwide Mission Society Church of God, more commonly known as the Mother God Cult. They are all over SDSU, and if you ever go there, you will probably encounter them, and they're very aggressive. Their church, or whatever you want to call it, is over by my house. They've come knocking on our door before. Very innocent. They just want to have a Bible study, talk to you about Jesus. It's a false Jesus. It's as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, another Jesus. Or maybe you believe that Jesus was just a great moral teacher, an enlightened spiritual guru, kind of like the Buddha, who never really judged anybody, never really said anything unkind. Jesus never really claimed to be God. I mean, I guess you can believe that if you want. He was... He was just welcoming and, and affirming to everyone he met. His main goal really is, is that you would just be nice and happy and kind to everyone and just, just follow your heart and, and live your truth. That's not Jesus. That's Mr. Rogers. But that Jesus is out there. It's every Disney movie. It's Disney's version of Jesus. It's, it's a false conception of Jesus that many unfortunately, I think, in our churches and in our culture, believe in. And these are just the tip of the iceberg. There are many, many, many more versions of Jesus out there. Brothers and sisters, faith and belief in those Jesuses will not save you on the day of judgment. Because those false Jesuses do not exist. They are 
figments of the imagination. They are counterfeits. See, when we talk about faith in Christ, it's not the sincerity of your faith in Christ that saves you. It's not the amount of the faith that you can muster that saved you. It's the object of your faith. It's what your faith is in. I don't care how sincere or how much you believe that you can fly. You jump off a cliff, you're going to get a rude awakening. You will quickly realize that the object of your belief, the object of your faith cannot save the same with a false Jesus. So what do we do? How do we know that the Jesus that we believe in is the true and biblical Jesus? Because all of them would say, no, ours is the right one. No, ours is the right one. Well, really, there's two ways. First, you check your beliefs against Scripture. All of those Jesuses that we talked about can be demonstrated clearly and consistently are not ones that line up with Scripture. We check our beliefs against Scripture. The Scriptures are inerrant, infallible, and the highest and sole authority for doctrine and life. Our only authority, our source of doctrine, our source of knowing who Jesus is. Any Jesus that doesn't match up with these words is a false Jesus. Secondly, we can check our understanding of Scripture against other believers. Here, now, and throughout history. So, brothers and sisters, if we are not the first generation of believers to read the Bible, we're not the smartest. We're not more inspired by the Holy Spirit than those of the past. We need the wisdom of brothers and sisters who have gone before us. If if we've come up with some conception of Jesus from the pages of Scripture that is different than the church has been teaching for 2,000 years, you've got a problem. We need the wisdom of brothers and sisters who have gone before us. This this is what we have in the creeds. This is what we have in the Apostles' Creed. The creeds are not inerrant. They are not on the level of Scripture. They are not authoritative in and of themselves. But they have stood the test of the centuries. The church has affirmed this is what the Bible teaches in summary form. And especially the Apostles' Creed. It doesn't say much. We need to say much more than the Apostles' Creed says. But what it does say is important the core of our faith. So we're going to continue this morning working through, moving on now from God the Father. There's kind of three sections in the creed you might have noticed. God the Father, Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit in the church. We're going to begin the section on Jesus Christ, the largest section this morning, and we're going to tackle that first phrase, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. It's a lot to say on this subject. I I found as I was studying this Everything I'll say this morning is just the tip of the infinite majesty of Jesus Christ. But we're going to attempt it this morning by the grace of God. So who do we believe the Bible teaches Jesus to be? That is our question. And we're going to break down this phrase, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, into four parts. Number one, Jesus. Jesus was a true historical human. So the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John relate to us about Jesus are true and historical. There are many who have denied this throughout church history. Jesus was a Jewish man who lived in the first century around Jerusalem. He physically walked the earth. He suffered. He was crucified and was buried and rose again on the third day. And we'll get into the details of those in the coming weeks. 
But the point is this, these things actually happen. These stories contained in the Gospels are not nice religious myths that help us feel good and know how to live our lives. They're not Aesop's fables. These are true. They're not spiritual allegories. They are true. The words we have in Scripture are the words that Jesus Christ himself taught. This is why the Gospel of Luke opens up this way. Listen to how Luke describes what his gospel is. He says this, Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things, in other words, he had read the other gospels, he's known about them, that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account most excellent Theophilus, that's a good name for a kid right there, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. The whole point of Luke's gospel is to give the historical account of what happened so that we can have certainty. Jesus was historical, but he was also truly human. Okay, so, so in, the, in, in the modern church, we declare... Jesus was God, but sometimes we kind of skip over the fact that Jesus was truly human, and this is so important. Jesus was truly human. He was not God operating like a a human puppet or a meat puppet or something like that. That's a weird phrase. Uh, But I think you get what I'm saying. Had a little too much coffee this morning. Is there a thing, by the way? I don't think so. Okay, we're divided on that. Well, we have unity in Christ. We can divide over that question. We'll argue that out later. Jesus Christ was truly human, truly human. There, there were false teachers and heretics from the earliest times of the church that denied this. And they were known as the docetists, which, which comes from a Greek word, dakeo, which just means to seem, to seem. And you can see where this is going. They taught that Jesus only seemed to be human, but actually he was like a ghost. So if you tried to touch him, your hand would have just gone through. They, these people were offended that God would ever become a human. They said it's not possible. God could never do that because flesh is evil. The physical world is evil. And so God, Jesus only appeared to be human. He was not actually in the flesh. But scripture itself, along with the entire early church, condemns this belief as heresy. Second John makes this very clear. And there's tons of places you go to see a Second John makes this very clear, chapter 1, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Again, we see how important it is to John that Jesus was truly human in the flesh. To deny this even is to be an antichrist. So, So Jesus, he ate, he slept, He got tired. He was tempted to sin even though he never sinned. So I love in the Gospel of John when the disciples see him for the first time after the resurrection. What is the first thing he does? He cooks some breakfast. He's hungry. He was a true human. So while we believe again and, and teach with our whole hearts that Jesus is God, we can't skip over the fact that he was human. We equally believe and proclaim that the Son of God became truly human. Why? Well, number one, because the scriptures teach it. One of the best summaries of of how this this works, that Jesus was both God and man, is is the 
Creed of the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and, and here's a sentence from it. We all with one voice, the church, the whole church, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. That is what we believe about Jesus. Now, what is at stake if we deny this? Why does it matter that Jesus was truly human? Can't we just say that he was God? Well, well, no. And we'll get into this in coming weeks. But if Jesus wasn't truly human, we have no example to follow of what humanity should be and should look like. If Jesus is not truly human then he could not have taken the place on the cross for our sins. If Jesus is not truly human, there is no mediator between God and man, and a mediator is what we need. Amen? So Jesus is a true historical human. But but that's not all he is. The creed continues, and this is the second point this morning. Jesus is the Christ. So we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we often miss the significance of this because I think just we say it so often that Christ comes to sound like Jesus' last name. Like if you went to his house, there'd be an address in the Christ family or something, you know what I mean? But it's not his last name. It's a title. It's a title. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which in English means anointed one or chosen one. So when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, or when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God's chosen and anointed Savior King. And again, I think because this is just, we talk about it maybe so much or in different ways, we we miss how massive a claim this is. We, We miss the implications of this. Oftentimes when we think of the gospel message, we think kind of the center of it is the forgiveness of our sins, and it's understandable why we would think that it's a huge deal, but really, the center of the gospel is this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, This is what the apostles were preaching when they preached the gospel. Now again, don't misunderstand me, that includes the forgiveness of sins. But this proclamation was that Jesus is the Christ, as as his very disciples went out into the first century world and preached the gospel, this is what they were sharing. Jesus is the Christ. They they weren't sharing four spiritual laws. They they were opening the scriptures, what we would call now the Old Testament, and showing people and proving to people that Jesus is the Christ that the Old Testament is talking about. Jesus is the man that, that the whole book's talking about. That's what they were showing people. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. We, we see this in a lot of different scriptures. I want to just show you a couple. The book of Acts, we, we have the, the content of the apostolic preaching. Look what it says, Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. What are they teaching and preaching? That the Christ is Jesus or that the Messiah is Jesus. That is the center of the apostolic preaching and teaching. Jesus is the Messiah. See the same thing in Acts 17. 
verse 1 through 3. This is is Paul now. Now, when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, Old Testament at that time. What was he doing? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So you, you, you can see, this, this is the central message of the New Testament. It's the very heart of the gospel. So it must be central to, to our gospel as well, if we're aiming to preach the same gospel that the apostles did. If our message is different than that of the apostles, we have a problem. But, but I think sometimes we slip into this, not for bad motives, but I, but I fear that often the understanding, our understanding of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah, has fallen a bit on hard times. Now, we would all say, if we're followers of Jesus, that we believe that, but I fear we've lost the depth of what it truly means because we've, we've become distant and unfamiliar with our Old Testaments. How can we expect to understand who Messiah Jesus is if we are ignorant of the very scriptures that teach so much about him? It's it's as if our our gospel has become a a little bit shriveled and shrunken. I think too often our our presentations of the gospel sound less like a, and I've been guilty of this as well, they sound less like a cosmic announcement about about the identity of Messiah and his victory and more like, Jesus is just a convenient way for you to personally get your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die so that you don't have to go to hell. That was not the message that the apostles were preaching. That's an implication. That's in there. But it's so much bigger. It's so much more cosmic. The cure for this this dehydrated gospel is to understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and to understand what that means in all of its biblical and theological fullness. You see, the the entire Old Testament is the story of Messiah. It's the story of humanity needing a righteous king. It's the story of of humanity failing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again at our God-given duty to worship God, to rule over creation, and to reflect his glory to all people everywhere. That's the story from Genesis to Malachi. See, God created Adam, humanity, in his image, so that Adam and his posterity, humanity, would reflect God's glory over all the earth and rule and reign in his stead. But Adam failed, and so humanity fell into sin. But, but, Even in Adam's failure, the future promise of Messiah shines through. In Genesis 3.15, we hear the words of God cursing the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. This is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words... There's a Messiah coming, and he's a serpent slayer. Adam failed, but Messiah is coming, God said. 
This isn't the end of the story. Satan, you haven't won. Humanity gets worse after this. They're wiped out in the flood. But again, there's a glimmer of hope. The ark is a foreshadowing of the salvation that Messiah will bring. Just like Noah and his family passed safely through God's judgment inside the ark, those in Christ, those in Messiah, will pass safely through final judgment. God always saves his people. Abraham is chosen. God promises through Abraham that through his family line, he will bless all the peoples of the earth. What does that mean? What's this blessing? What's, what's this promise? How, how will it be accomplished? We find out later, it's, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How is it accomplished? Through the death and resurrection of Messiah Jesus. Paul tells us this in Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ, Messiah, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's that blessing? That we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's all about Messiah. It all centers around him. It all points to him. Christ is the story. And the rest of the Old Testament, all the stories in varied ways tell the same thing. Israel rejects God. Humanity continues in their path. They continue to fail and sin and commit idolatry. The nation of Israel, whom God calls his son, in many ways was supposed to be like Adam, end up being just like Adam in that they keep turning away from God and falling into idolatry. So we get this pattern over and over. God commands, Israel disobeys, God judges, God rescues, rinse and repeat over and over and over. Again, the point of the story is that we need Messiah. We need a Savior. We need the Redeemer. God continually rescues his people. He rescues them from slavery in Egypt. He gives them laws and they break them. But, but even this doesn't catch God by surprise. God didn't give the law to keep Israel on the straight and narrow, which, which sounds strange at first. He actually gave them the law to point them to Christ. The, the, the laws were meant to show God's righteous ways and to show Israel their inability to live by them so that Israel would rely on God's mercy. They were meant to humble to sever Israel, to sever us from our pride so that we might cast ourselves upon God and his mercy. They're meant to point us to Messiah Jesus. That's what the law is meant to do. Martin Luther says it best. He says that our self-pride, our self-righteousness is a big tree and the law is a really big ax. It's meant to point us to Jesus. That's why you have these, these funny passages contained in the law. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. There's multiple that even as Moses is giving them the law, he tells them they're going to fail, they're going to disobey. God, as he's giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai, the people are already disobeying it down on the ground. My favorite scene is in Deuteronomy 31. So this is after that. This is, they've, they've wandered through the desert. They're right on the edge of the promised land. 
That, that unfaithful generation has died, and so Deuteronomy means Deuteronomy, second law. It's the second giving of the law. Moses reminds the people of the laws they're about to enter in. Don't be like your fathers and mothers who died because they're in faithfulness. Moses already knows he will not be allowed to go in because he has failed. And so God gives Moses this word in Deuteronomy 31, 19. He says, Moses, I want you to write a song. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. It's called the Song of Moses. Why? Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Okay, this is not sounding good already. They haven't even gone into the promised land yet. God says, I need a witness for when they disobey. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat. In other words, when I provide them with everything that I promised to provide for them, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. We're reading it today. For I know that they are inclined to do, even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Not very encouraging. Don't worry, everybody. I already know you're going to fail, but good luck. So what's the point? If the law is the point, if obedience to the law is the way that they're going to get all this stuff, the way that they're going to please God, what is the point? The point of the law is Messiah. God already knows they're going to disobey. The law is the point, and it doesn't make any sense. But if the law isn't the point, and Messiah is the point, and his righteousness is the point, his salvation is the point, God's glory is the point, then this makes sense sense. The law was to show our inability and our guilt and our condemnation so that when God's grace came in Jesus Christ, you'd be ready. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Paul says in Romans 10, 4, that he is the end, the purpose, the termination of the law for righteousness for all those who have faith. God gets all the glory in Christ. Every time God's people fail and are judged by God, God reminds them of coming Messiah. One day, all things will be made right. This is the point of the book of Leviticus. It's the point of all these things. God gives them kings. You know the stories. Most of the kings themselves reject God and worship idols. On the surface, it seems as if the people of Israel are doomed. Every human king fails them, even the good ones. They can't obey God's laws. They lose them at some point until Josiah finds them. What's this? Oh, it's God's law. But beneath the surface of the text is this abiding hope. Messiah is coming. There, there, there are these little glimmers of hope throughout. In Genesis 49, we, we find out that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah and that one day all people will obey him. Moses tells us Messiah will be a great prophet he will be born in Bethlehem. He will be born of a virgin. He will be from King David's line and will sit on David's throne and reign forever. You heard that in Psalm 45. This is the point. Jesus is the point of all of it. Jesus, the Christ, is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. The Bible is a story about him. But, but, Jesus is, is more than just some 
human Messiah, some human king that was going to save them. Jesus was going to do more than just throw off Israel's enemies so that they could live in peace. Jesus Christ is not just some mere human that God chose to fulfill this role, like David or Moses. No human could save us. No human could fulfill any of this. We needed something more. We needed God himself to save us in the person of Jesus Christ. That is exactly who we find. And that brings us to our third point. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the son of God. Now, there are, there are lots of people called son of God in the Bible. Adam is called the son of God. Israel is called the son of God. The kings of the Davidic line are called the son of God. Solomon's called the son of God. But, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus being the son of God. All of those are just types pointing forward to the true and eternal son. Jesus Christ is Yahweh God in the flesh. He is the eternal son of God. Remember what we said earlier, he is truly God and truly man. So, so what does it mean? What are the implications that he is the son of God? Well, two things at least. Jesus, the son, is eternal. He is eternal. Adam was created. David was created. Jesus was not created. Jesus has been, has eternally been the son of God. We reject what the third century heretic Arius taught and same thing that Jehovah's Witnesses teach, by the way, they don't like if you call them Arians. Um, I can tell you that. Arius, he, the reason his, this heresy was so popular in the third century, one of them, is because he was a songwriter and he wrote these really cool songs. One of the songs, he would sing this line, there was a time when the sun was not. So the sun has not eternally existed. He would say the father created him. We would say, no, Jesus is not a created being. He is the eternal God. There's many things we could look at in Scripture, but listen to how Jesus prays as he is praying to his Father in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is preexistent. He has always existed. He is the eternal Son of God, before anything was created, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were with one another, full in glory. Number two, the Son is eternal because he is truly God. He is not a God. He is not a part of God. He is not a creation of God. Jesus is fully and truly God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 9.5, and here we're going to connect the idea of Christ being God. Romans 9, 5, speaking of the Jews, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Messiah was Jewish, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And John so beautifully puts it in John chapter 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's not a God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, if you're a little bit rusty on your Trinitarian theology, I'm just going to assume that everyone here has perfect Trinitarian theology. Uh, you, might, you might look at that passage and say, well, wait a minute. Okay, why does it say that he was in the beginning with God if he is God? That seems to not make sense. Maybe, is that some type of contradiction? It seems a little bit confusing. But, but the doctrine of the Trinity so beautifully explains why John writes this way. There is one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father's God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. All of them co-equal in glory and majesty. All of them fully and truly God. And yet, and yet, the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son, etc. So one God three persons. John's simple, simple phrasing protects this beautifully. The word was God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God, yet there is some type of distinguishing that goes on within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps the best summary statement of this idea is contained in in a document called the Athanasian Creed from around the fifth century. Listen to how this is put, and this is beautiful. I have it up on the screen. I think it should be the next slide, maybe, hopefully. There it is, okay. So this is a long document, but listen to how they describe it. That we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons. In, In other words, we always distinguish the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, nor dividing the essence, but there's still only one God. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Now, we could spend an eternity trying to understand the full implications of that, but the basic truth is there. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and understanding and believing that fact alone will inoculate you against most of, not, if not all of the heresies that we've talked about. All of them have to demote Jesus to being a created being. Which is exactly what Satan would want to do, isn't it? None of them believe this because none of them believe what the scriptures nor the early church has always taught. The implications of this truth massive. Because Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, he reveals God to us. Not not as as he's reading from some book about God. He is God, so he reveals God to us. John 1, 18, at the end of this section of John, says this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So no one has ever seen God. In other words, no one can explain God to you except God himself. That is what we have in the Son, the only God. He has made God known to us. It's beautiful. The the Son reveals God to us. He explains God to us. He shows us God in his life. We can look at Jesus and know exactly what God is like. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at Christ. 
Jesus said in John 14 to Philip, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? God is one. To know Christ is to know the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's why in 1 John he says, if you don't know the Son, you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father or the Holy Spirit either. There's only one God. If you know God, you know him through Christ. God in his grace has condescended and revealed himself to us in the person of Christ. Because of that, we can know him. Because we know Jesus. Lastly, number four, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king. The king of all creation, the king of all humanity. And you can see how all of these titles, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. They're not exclusive. They all kind of say similar things. Christ is the the author of life. We saw in John, he's the creator of all things. He holds all power and all authority in his hands, eternity past and eternity future. He rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father, will one day return again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible teaches us you must believe this to be saved. But we managed to distort this one too. There's a popular false teaching going around years ago, and it's, it's still out there. Uh, basically teaching that as long as someone, you know, prayed the right prayer, said the right words, Jesus, come into my heart, that they could be saved without acknowledging Jesus as Lord. In other words, it's possible for someone to have Jesus as Savior and not 